It's a brighter day on its way. 1981. Oh, I'm so glad to be an American. I really am. I love you all. Oh, my goodness. There's people out here kissing. <laughs> the ball's starting to drop. Here it goes. Everybody. I've got a lot of work to do and make, makes you realize there's a lot of responsibility and this, this tour, I want to really get myself together and work harder, you know, because I'm, I'm really proud and honored and I don't want to stop there, you know. Hey, brothers and sisters of the Sabbath, welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast of a Madman. My name is Ryan and we're flying high again here. Episode three. Three weeks in a row. <laughs> hey, I'm fucking proud of that. I'm not a weekly podcaster by trade at all. Keeping a schedule like this, man, it's kind of tricky for me. With the last series on Sabbath, I do like one, maybe two a month, but at least I'm trying to keep it tight here this round. And also, I'm very much enjoying the subject matter. I mean, diving into this early Randy Rhodes era, Ozzy Osbourne. I know for most people this is like the solo Aussie that they love, but I've never been into this era much, actually. Like, I mean, I love it now, and like many of you, the album that we're covering today, Diary of Madman, that's like my favorite of his solo catalog. But really, I came up on the Zack stuff first, and then the Jake stuff. This early stuff is pretty fresh to me still, so I'm enjoying this. And before we kick into the immediate follow-up to Blizzard of Oz here, let's give a shout-out to the network. Nate and John at Deep Purple Podcast, the goddamn chairman of the board, T-Bone Mathley, and the simple man over at Skinner to Reconsidered, the podcast where I am kind of like the Bob Daisley, you know, getting called in from time to time to run that shit from the studio. Go check out all the network affiliates and my guest appearances on Skinner to Reconsidered. But also, I got another recommendation that I've been meaning to mention here on the show. If you like the band Queen, which you fucking should, check out some of my Celtic brethren over there at the In the Lap of the Pods podcast. It's an album-by-album exploration of Queen, and these guys are really rolling now. I think they're already five or six albums deep. The last one that I checked out was the At The Races one, which was great. They're just stepping it up, album to album, getting into the podcasting. I like it. They're like grassroots, some Glasgow lads, doing a spot-on job, covering a very important band. I mean, Queen needs a deep dive podcaster too, so go support them. The more single band deep dive podcast, the better. That's what I always say. Okay, though, let's roll into the next year here with Ozzy. Hit the road with roads. <laughs> Make a believer out of y'all. As alluded to in the tail end of last week's episode, the Blizzard of Oz band were already working on their next album at the end of 1980. So, just like last week, this year begins in the studio for the lads. Motherfuckers do move fast here. Gotta get as much gold out of roads as we can while well, we got them, right? It was now Ozzy, Randy, Bobby, and Lee. <laughs> and tickling the ivories, we have 
Johnny? Wait, who? It tends to be taken for granted that Don Aaron played on Diary of a Madman because he played on Blizzard of Oz, but he didn't. It was Johnny Cook on, on Diary of a Madman, and it wasn't my idea. I, I, I think Don Airy had gone on the road with Rainbow or something, um, with Richie Blackmore, because he was in Rainbow then. Mm -hmm. So while we were doing Diary, um, I think it was Jack Records just found you know a good player that could play on the album for a session, and it turned out to be Johnny Cook. Now, Johnny Cook was meant to get paid and meant to get credit on the album. And, he, and uh, you know, he never was ever credited on the album, and he even had to get the musicians' union involved to get paid. So, you know, they didn't treat him very well, but uh, <laughs> that's not unusual for that lot. Well, there you go, a confirming days Ladit. Right off the bat, we get another buried Aussie contributor here. So much fuckery in the credit section of this release. So don't look at the album sleeve if you want to know who the players are on Diary of a Madman. I didn't even know about this Cookfella until that Daisley interview. I also assumed that it was Don Airy still on this record. But really, I should have known better. I mean, look at some of the credits on here. Rudy Sarzo on bass, Tommy Aldridge on drums. I don't think that happened yet. <laughs> but anyway... February 9th, 1981, with a nice break in the tour for Blizzard of Oz, the lads returned to Ridge Farm Studios, where they teamed once again with Ridge Farm resident engineer Max Norman. And this time, he kind of gets a full co-producer credit on here. And they were only on the farm there for five or six weeks in total, a little more than Blizzard, still quick as fuck, but goddamn, son, I don't need to tell you. The result is the crown jewel of Ozzy's catalog, a true masterpiece. What really sets Diary apart from Blizzard, even, is the fullness and sound they achieve. The rhythm section sounds great on here. Bob and Lee really lock into how to support Randy's brilliant riffing. And Randy's perfectly mixed, too, whereas on Blizzard, I find he's a little too forward. Sounds kind of layered on top at times, soaring above the others, even. But here, he's right in the fucking trenches with them, and that's great the ambience that they're all swimming around into. The album just has a lovely sense of space. Less compartmentalized than Blizzard, to my ears, anyway. Same goes for the vocals. Ozzy's more in the pocket. I mean, this sounds like a fucking band now. And I liken it to the progression of Sab's records at the time, too. Like, the step up from Blizzard to Mad Men is kind of like the step up from Heaven and Hell to Mob Rules. The band is just more comfortable with each other, so the takes feel more alive. And, you know, at least to my ears. They also step up on the post-production stuff here too orchestrated symphonic parts kind of laid into the record some string sections there's even some choirs mixed in at points especially on side two of this record i gotta say side two of diary might be the strongest of all ozzy's material if you're gonna break it down to side ones and twos it's a hell of a platter front to back don't get me wrong but that back end of it oh beauty i may go deeper with the track by track exploration of all these albums later but for now i just wanted to rave about how powerful a record Diary of a Madman is. There isn't a track on here that I don't love. I mean, maybe You Can't Kill Rock and Roll, that's probably the weakest, but that's an absolute banger too. But my favorite, and most Aussie fans' favorite, is that epic closing track, right? Fuck me. The glorious title track. So let's dive into a little article here I found with Max Norman talking specifically about the grand symphonic closer here. A lot of magic was done after the recording session, as Max recalls here. He says... We went into Abbey Road, and we did it in the same studio as the Beatles used, the big Studio C downstairs. 
we used a guy named Lewis Clark, who arranged for ELO. Funny story, it was a 10 a.m. session, and at about 10.30, Lewis still wasn't there. So we had no music, everything was working, and I was standing there thinking, man, this is bad news. You only get three hours, and otherwise, if you break another hour, it's going to cost you double. It was a 26-piece string section out there. It's expensive to have all those guys, and we were freaking out. And then Lewis finally shows up, one hour late, all hungover, fucking hair flying in the wind. He was carrying two pints of John Courage in his hands, and he says, All right, where's the copy guy? I give him credit, though. Man, this guy ripped out all those charts for those string guys in just 16 minutes. Lewis had written the whole thing. Just wrote it out. He didn't even have a tape recorder or nothing. He just wrote the shit out and gave it to them. And then he got up there and conducted the thing. He said, okay, play it back. We went through the track and, fuck, he got everything right on the first go. It was unbelievable seeing stuff like that. You walk away shaking your head. There you go, the real madman is Lewis Clark, I guess. Riding into the session like fucking Ozzy with pints in hand. Proper rock star. He knows what he was preparing for here. I mean, all he needed to do was fucking relieve himself in the tuba and he would have been a dead ringer for Oz, right? The bloke conducts some goddamn magic here, though. As mentioned there, he worked with ELO, so, you know, he was a Don Arden boy. So the diary recordings are in the can. The lads still need to debut their fucking debut in the States, at least, right? Also, it should be noted that Ozzy's relationship at this time with Sharon was really intensifying. He kind of connected with her on the tour the first leg of the UK tour while she was serving as the day-to-day tour manager. And so those two are fucking, right? So <laughs> we all know how that pans out. I won't get too much into the affair, but by the end of the year, Thelma, Ozzy's then-wife, would file for divorce, and Ozzy and Sharon would get hitched shortly after that in 1982. And then Amy's born shortly after that, so <laughs> fuck. I'm not one to do the math or to pry into the cat's personal life, but needless to say, some shit was going down pretty early here. Anyway, that's a sidetrack that we don't really need to get into. So, even before going in to record Madman, Ozzy and Sharon were dropping hints to Randy and Daisley that they wanted a change, specifically in the drummer slot. I think we need another Daisley Deet. Get us back on track here. Here's Bob telling us a bit about the new power dynamic of Ozzy and Sharon here and how that led to him and Lee's release. Because people say to me, why did you leave Ozzy the first time? And I just say, because I was asked to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie about it, you know. See, what happened was, it was Sharon and Ozzy were looking to get rid of Lee. They didn't want Lee in the band. Ozzy and Lee had got on okay together at first, but Sharon and Lee hadn't really hit it off. It was just a, a wrong chemistry or something. And then it was suggested that of, you know, let's get rid of Lee and let's get rid of, and let's get Tommy Aldrich as drummer, you know, so, and I would never agree to getting rid of Lee. Not because of any loyalty to Lee or anything, I just thought it was the wrong thing to do. So, I wouldn't agree, and they kept on asking me, and eventually they got rid of us both, you know, so. But I was asked back, so, there you go. So Ozzy and Sharon obviously give different accounts for all the reasons for firing Kerslick and Daisley. Sharon likens it to the pair continually haggling over money and taking advantage of the perks being provided to them. Lee and Bob, they got a different story where they say they got really fucking shafted and they did get shafted on the credit stuff. That's out in the open. Look at the sleeve of fucking Diary of a Madman. It's right there. 
in black and red and yellow. <laughs> Basically, it was all about the Benjamins, baby. When it comes down to it, the result was walking papers for both of them. But don't worry, the story doesn't end there, especially for our man Bob Daisley. He will be back very shortly, but this is when we will say goodbye to Mr. Lee Kerslick. He goes back out on the road with his old band Uriah Heep. I think Daisley was even involved in the reunions there until Ozzy pulls him back into the camp. But Lee, you get a proper toast here. What an incredible drummer. Solange. <laughs> Weird sounding can today. The thick Sapporo can. Gives a nice little plunk there. So that's my beer of choice right now. I'm digging the Japanese beer lately. Well, what you can find in Canada anyway, but basically Sapporo and Asai, but I like the crisp, kind of dry finish of these lagers. They're nice. There you go, a little beer review for you. Give it up for Lee Kerslake. Rest in power, brother. And it's also said that at this time, our favorite shredder, Randy Rhodes, even threatened to quit in protest when they fired Lee and Daisley. But, but don't worry, he was kept on by bringing in some replacements that he was very comfortable with and some absolutely stud players in their own right. I mean, I love Bob and Lee, but as far as the full look, when they bring on Tommy Allrich and bassist... Rudy Sarzo, it's pretty fucking iconic, right? With Allrich, he had actually already known Osborne for several years. As Black Rock, Arkansas, his most famous previous project, they had toured with the Sabs extensively in the 1970s. And I think that's the main reason for Ozzy wanting to bounce Curse, like just to bring in Allrich, because he, he left an impression on him in the 70s there. It's not because Lee was bad, but Tommy has the it factor, in Ozzy's eyes at least. Living in England and I got hooked up and I remember Don Arden called me to his office and planned something for me. He said, uh, he said, listen to this talk, I don't know if you could uh, put some drums on this for me. And I said, sure Don, what is it? And he played it and it was outtakes from Blizzard and Diary of Madman, the sessions. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, I'm listening to it in headphones and I'm saying, I play, he said, he wanted me to put overdub the drums on it. And I said, well, why, Don, would you want me to do that? I said, that sounds really good. You don't want to mess with that. He said, well, do you think I could play it better? Uh, and I said, what, you mean just from a drummer's point of view? I said, well, I'd like to think I could do it better, but it's not going to make that music any better. That's really special, some serious stuff that's going on there. I didn't know what I was really listening to, you know. Well, it ended up being those two albums. And he was trying then, they were trying then, to get the drums and the bass off of those records then before they were even really officially released. And he, he is a goddamn beast of a drummer, just like Lee. Maybe better. I kind of lean more towards Allrich. Neither of them are my favorite Aussie drummers, but we'll get to those cats later. And that's all a matter of opinion, right? But, yeah. As for the bass slot, certainly not as next level as Bob Daisley, this guy, but he's an upgrade in the stage presence, I think. So let's let Rudy introduce himself, because he loves to talk Aussie. I used to play with Randy Rhodes in the Quiet uh, Quiet Riot in the 70s. And then when Randy joined Ozzy, they recorded a couple of records with the original rhythm section, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of Madman. By the time that they were ready to start touring in the United States, they replaced the, uh, the rhythm section. They already had uh, Tommy Aldrich who joined the band. And they were about 10 days away from actually starting the tour. So the trust factor had to be very huge because they didn't want somebody who was going to be detrimental, you know, to the situation as far as being a bad influence on Ozzy, basically, you know. And Randy said, well, you know, Rudy's not an alcoholic. He doesn't, he's not a drug addict. Uh, you know, he's reliable and he can play this, you know. Um, so that's how I actually 
got the gig by Randy Rhodes' recommendation. You know, he trusted me that I was going, you know, he trusted me with the trust factor that he had built with Ozzy and Sharon, because it's a, it still is it's a very tight circle to get in, you know, with them. And I went from sleeping on a floor the day of the audition, it's, I was sleeping in Kevin DeBro's valley apartment on the spare, you know, spare room on a floor, to actually living with them, with Ozzy and Sharon. I, I moved in. I, they just showed me a bungalow that they had in their, in their, in Sharon's family's uh, uh, estate, and say, okay, you can live there. And it was unbelievable, you know, just going from like zero to being part of that very tight, wonderful family. Yeah, so although I have nothing but love for Rudy and his plan, his book, which I picked up, is kind of goofy. I mean, <laughs> I 100% recommend reading it, but it's no Mick Wall or Daisley-level masterpiece of writing on Ozzy here. There's a lot of, shall we say, kind of padding around the good content. It's pretty stretched out, even for like a 300-page book. <laughs> There's lots of fake dialogue and shit. Here, I'll read a little bit from it, because like I said, there is some good stuff in here. Rudy was also a member of Randy Rhodes' old band, Quiet Riot, joining just before Randy got the Aussie gigs. But there was a little bit of crossover there, so it was Randy who specifically put the request in for Rudy to get into the band. And here's a recounting here of Randy introducing Rudy to Ozzy from Rudy Sarzo's book, Off the Rails. We arrived at Trader Vic's, a restaurant located in Beverly Hills where Ozzy was staying. Ozzy was waiting for us along with Sharon and drummer Tommy Allridge. Ozzy gave us a very warm welcome, and he asked me to sit next to him. He ordered a round of drinks and proceeded to tell me how excited he was about touring the U.S. for the first time since he had left Black Sabbath. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, Sharon and Tommy were closely eyeing me up, looking under the table to see what shoes I was wearing. The reason being, Randy had told them that I was playing an angel. Tommy had told Sharon that the bass player in that band had stolen his shoes from a mutual friend's house in Chicago, where Tommy was staying. Fortunately, I was quickly cleared when Tommy heard my Cuban accent and realized that I wasn't the same guy. <laughs> okay, so history between Tommy and Rudy. Like I said, very incestuous L.A. scene, so of course they've crossed paths in some way. And as warned, Sarzo's book is written in kind of an obnoxious way. He's constantly recreating some fake dialogue, like he'll write it like it's a fucking transcript for nine pages. Then Ozzy said, Rudy Sarzo, you are an okay bloke. I want you and Randy Rhodes to go over the tracks. <laughs> then I said, okay, Ozzy Osbourne, I will do my best. <laughs> like, it's kind of a stupid way to write an autobiography. Just give your honest recollections, dude. Throw some shade at Sharon and be done with it. <laughs> Don't make up fucking hack dialogue. <laughs> anyway, I digress. So Tommy and Rudy were in. And they rehearsed up quickly for the first Aussie solo U.S. tour to commence here. While the rehearsals were happening sometime in mid-April, if I piece together a timeline here using some of Rudy Sarzo's recounts, it's around that time that the infamous Aussie biting the heads off of two live doves at a record company meeting happens. You've all heard this story, but I'll just play a clip here of that old yarn. Here is the madman himself. I've had a reputation for... The occasional tipple, <laughs> now and again, you know. I was quite partial to the occasional vat of alcohol. And this one particular day, Sharon said we had we we had to go and see CBS Records in Los Angeles, and I'd been on the on the piss all night long, you know. 
So I've got this bottle of Cavazio. She says, what I want you to do, I want you to go in and throw these two doves up in the air. You know, they're all these boards of director guys with their suits and these, you know, smartly just... I was just drunk as a monkey. Threw one up in the air and bit the head off the other one. <laughs> threw it on the table and they, and, and like, they just said, they just banned me from the building. And it's only in the last three years they've allowed me back in the building. Yep, so that's Famous Yarn there. Really nothing to add from Rye Guy here. The only thing missing that I find funny is that Sharon pissed her pants laughing at the whole situation, apparently. <laughs> like, what fucking maniacs these guys are. But come on, we've all heard the Dove and Bat stories enough, right? So let's get back on the tour here. With Blizzard of Oz, the album is officially released in the U.S., so they're still in support of that album. But it's no longer the Blizzard of Oz band here. It's simply known as Ozzy Osbourne by this point. And they really drive that home once Daisley and Lee are out. And that's actually important, because somewhere along the line, Ozzy and management were very specific about keeping everything under Ozzy's name. Daisley and Lee obviously prompted that with their legal actions and claims. So with the Diary of a Madman album in the can, there's obviously some fuckery with how they package that and put it out. The tour, though, goes pretty smoothly at the beginning here. With this new rhythm section in place, they were also workshopping some of those diary tracks right into the set from the get-go. Let's look at one of those early 1981 sets here in America. April 22nd, Towson, Maryland. The first show with Rudy and Tommy on board here. So, O Fortuna to open, and then into I Don't Know, Crazy Train, Believer, Crowley. So they stick to the Blizzard's track list verbatim to start. And then it's flying high again making its debut, so a diary track sneaking in. Then they go back to some Blizzard material, Revolution, Mother Earth, Steal Away the Night, there's a drum solo into No Bone Movies, Suicide Solution, guitar solo, and then the Sabs classics, Iron Man, Trillin' the Grave, and of course, without fail, the encore, Paranoid. With the Blizzard record out worldwide now and selling well, Ozzy becomes a household name. They didn't need the Sabs name attached to them, but they, of course, would still play the hits from them. The U.S. tour swings through the East first, with the mighty Motorhead opening for them. I'll give you a quick taste here. For our live fix today, this comes from a televised gig that was in Rochester, New York, April 28th. This is essential viewing, too, because this thing was filmed. One of the few times you really get to see Randy and all his tricks in full effect. It's a great capture. A couple of tracks out there. I know there's a Mr. Crowley, but I'm going to hit you with the classic. Some crazy train. Just listen to how incredible Randy is at switching from rhythm to lead parts here. It's nuts. Great live capture. Watch that one on YouTube because seeing Randy in all his glory, well, it's fucking glorious. <laughs> the tour all seems to go pretty well at this point, apart from some exhaustion here and there. 96 dates total, so it's a long-ass leg. 
Ozzy himself was hitting the booze pretty hard, which is par for the course, of course. <laughs> so you can see the 80s bloat starting to take its shape here in his mid-drift area. <laughs> but trust me, it gets a lot worse. So the last official Blizzard of Oz tour date is September 3rd, 1981 at Daytona Beach. The band then took a one-month kind of break before going over to Europe to start the tour supporting their upcoming album, Diary of a Madman, scheduled for a worldwide release November 7th, 1981. But they probably should have taken a little more time, because it all starts catching up to Ozzy here. In early November 1981, they get into Germany, start the Madman cycle. At first, they're just opening for Saxon, I believe, so not fully headlining in Europe. But Diary of a Madman is released to coincide with the tour, and not even two weeks in, on November 13th, they have to call off the rest of the European tour because of Ozzy's mental state. I guess everything was catching up to him, you know? He'd been going through his divorce and all that bullshit, so the madman took a breather. Not long, though. He's checked into a mental health care facility, actually. The rest of the band is told to just kind of keep rehearsing, and when Ozzy's ready, he'll join you guys. Ozzy does play two shows in Bristol in late November, one last gasp in Liverpool, too, on December 3rd. But he's not ready. He just kind of sinks into a depression for a few more weeks. And so they decide to outright just cancel the European cycle for Madman and just hit the States next month, which is also basically the next year. So to close the year out here, though, and to end the show on a high note, let's talk about a nice little nod of recognition for our, for our favorite little American, Randy Rhodes. So on the first gig back, December 30th actually, so it's still 1981, Randy actually receives Guitar Magazine's Best New Talent of 1981. And he's awarded this backstage before a gig. And we have a clip, so roll the clip, right? Randy, on behalf of the over half million readers of Guitar Player Magazine in the U.S. and in 70 countries throughout the world, I'd like to present you with the 1981 Best New Talent Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Give him a kiss, Ozzy. I've got a lot of work to do, and make makes you realize there's a lot of responsibility. And this this tour, I want to really get myself together and work harder, you know, because I'm I'm really proud and honored, and I don't want to stop here, you know. So that's cool. Some recognition for the genius while he's still with us here. Kind of sad to hear him at the end there, given what we all know happens next year. But that's next week, folks. For now, let's shut her down here. Finish off my beer. Ah, that's nice. So don't forget to leave the show a review on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter, at SabbathBloodyPC. Follow the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Email me at sabbathbloodypodcast at gmail.com. Let's get some conversation going. I want to talk to you. (laughs) Okay. I'll see you. See you on the other side.